The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. The complications are going to be low vitamin D, high PTH, high phosphorus, high potassium, metabolic acidosis, iron deficiency, and anemia. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's podcast features an article from the in the clinic section of the Annals of Internal Medicine, titled Chronic Kidney Disease. It appeared June 2nd, 2015. Discussing this article with me is Dr. Joel Toth, who returns for a second podcast. He's a clinical educator in Detroit, a nephrologist who has made major contributions to social media, including starting NEF Journal Club, NEF Madness, He tweets frequently at kidney underscore boy, and he also is the originator of a new podcast called Freely Filtered, which discusses articles from Nephrology Journal Club. We're delighted to have Joel for this discussion. Joel, it's so great to have you back on the podcast to talk about chronic kidney disease The article that we're reviewing is from 2015. I know a few things have changed, and so we won't go strictly by what's in the article, um, but use that sort of as a jumping-off point. Yeah, I thought it was a good article. I liked it quite a bit. Yeah. One of the first things that I want to talk about that seems to be an unintended consequence of our basic metabolic panels giving an estimated GFR is that a lot of residents and... uh, A lot of interns don't really understand the strengths and problems with estimated GFR. So I thought it'd be worthwhile to go over that first before we go and talk about the stages of chronic kidney disease. Yeah, so the estimated GFR uh, is a way to interpret the serum creatinine, right? It takes the serum creatinine and that it incorporates also uh, the age, uh, race, and gender of the patient to get an estimate of their glomerular filtration rate. And um, this is a great way because, uh, you know, when we talk about a normal serum creatinine, every person with different muscle mass has a different normal serum creatinine for them. And it makes it just difficult to interpret. And by running it through one of a few different equations, it allows us to essentially normalize it. So with a single number, you can get a sense of uh, how a a variety of people's kidney functions compare. But occasionally it's inaccurate. Um, and I had a patient on my service who had an estimated GFR of 300. <laughs> That's probably not true. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not the correct GFR. As I understand, the problem is it's doing an estimate of the muscle mass because the muscle mass determines how much creatinine you produce. And if for some reason you have too much muscle mass for your age and gender or too little muscle mass, you're going to have an inaccurate estimated GFR. 
Yeah, I, I, about uh, you know a few times a year, I'll have a young, healthy, uh, uh, muscular man, usually a man, come into my clinic, and they're referred there because they have a low GFR, and that's because uh, the, the I call it getting caught in the equation. They have a lot of muscle mass, and they get a, a low estimated GFR. And you know, there's a couple of ways to attack that. You can uh, order a cystatin C, which is a, a a molecule that is not affected by muscle mass. Or what I like to do is a 24-hour urine creatinine clearance, which essentially controls for the generation of creatinine. And I see it the other way with people who have decreased muscle mass, cord injury patients, uh, amputees, etc., where we get a, a wild overestimation of their GFR. Yep. Okay. Let's assume we have someone who uh, we think that the formula is working for. I think it's worthwhile to go over the stages of chronic kidney disease, when do we actually call it chronic kidney disease, and why they split 3A from 3B, which seems to be confusing all of my residents. Okay, let's, let's walk through that. There's stage one and stage two require some independent evidence of kidney damage besides a decreased GFR, because those people have a GFR between 60 and somewhere north of that, some, something better than 60. They also need to have either proteinuria or renal hematuria or an abnormal ultrasound like a single kidney or polycystic kidney disease. So, you know, this would be you know, a classic case of a stage one CKD patient is early diabetes. They're going to be hyperfiltrating, so their GFR is often north of 120, but they'll have proteinuria. And so that would be someone who would be classified as the stage one CKD. When their GFR falls below 90, so between 90 and 60, and proteinuria or hematuria or an abnormal ultrasound, then they'll be stage two. Stage three is a GFR below 60, so essentially 59 down to 30. And it doesn't require that additional factor of proteinuria or hematuria or kidney ultra, an abnormal kidney ultrasound. It doesn't require any other evidence of kidney disease. A low GFR is adequate to make the diagnosis of CKD3. What ended up happening when they made that definition is lots of people that were otherwise healthy but just had advanced age or low muscle mass ended up getting caught in that CKD3 definition. These people were flooding into nephrologist's office. They were wor they were getting flagged on lab results, and it kind of caught a lot of people in that position. And there was some thought that well, maybe we should divide this group up into people with early disease, make GFR of 45 to 59. We'll call that CKD3A, and those would be much lower risk than people that would have later more progressive CKD3, which would be GFR of 30 to 44, and we'll call those CKD3B. So the difference between A and B is just how far down their GFR is. GFR is below 45, we're gonna call CKD stage 3B. Is that clear? Absolutely, and I've even read that some nephrologists think that we shouldn't even label 3A as kidney disease, that that's still a little controversial. Yeah, I, 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 you could put me in that group. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so, I, I get. I, I see a lot of these patients, and I think they have a very low risk of progression. And and um, I'm a big fan of this uh, Tangri ESRD risk formula. Are you familiar with this? I'm not. That sounds interesting. 
Yeah. So Tangri used uh, large population studies to look at the risk that people would develop end-stage renal disease requiring dialysis within two years and five years. The equation requires the GFR, the patient's age, the amount of albuminuria they have, and then uh, it'll give you a percentage. And I find it helpful both at high ends of the GFR range where I can show people, hey, when you do this calculation and your five-year risk of needing dialysis is less than 1%. People understand that so much better than a GFR of 45. Right. Right. It's so much easier. To, oh, less than 1%. Okay. I don't need to really worry about this. Right. Five years, that's a long time. And then I also use it in patients with advanced kidney disease. So you have a patient with a GFR of 22 and you say, well, your two-year risk of dialysis is 20%. Oh, all of a sudden, they understand why I'm starting to get ready for dialysis. It's not a certainty, but it's enough of a reality that we need to get ready for that. We need to prepare for that possibility. And people understand that also. And so uh, to me, it's a it's a very useful uh, formula. There's websites that uh, provide the calculation for you. And it's, I just have it bookmarked, and I use it in most of my consultations now. Great. Okay. So in stage four and stage five, just so we can complete the uh, – Yep. Yep. The list. Right. So stage four is a, a GFR from 15 up to 29, and stage five, a GFR below 15. Some people will define that as uh, stage five on dialysis or stage five not on dialysis. One of the other um, things that I sometimes say, and I think I've heard other people say, is the metabolic complications that you get in the process of getting towards end-stage kidney disease usually don't occur until you get to 3B or stage 4. So when you have someone who's 3B, do you start looking for these? And what are the main metabolic complications that, as an internist, I should be thinking about before I call you? Yeah, so the the complications are going to be low vitamin D, high PTH, high phosphorus, high potassium, metabolic acidosis, iron deficiency, and anemia. I think that's a pretty comprehensive list right there. That's a great list. Yeah. So let's put those into three categories. One is mineral metabolism. Sure. Which is the phosphate, the vitamin D, and the PTH. If I see someone who has a GFR of 40 and uh, in my office, should I be checking a PTH? First of all, uh, and I think this was brought out in the article, and I thought they did a nice job. They said that the evidence base behind this treatment of mineral metabolism is very weak. And I completely agree with that. We have a lot of tools to manipulate these numbers. And we have very little data to show that manipulating those numbers helps patients. Mm-hmm. Okay. And some of the things that we do to affect the PTH and the phosphorus and the calcium really are asking patients to do a lot. We're asking them to really alter their diet significantly. We're asking them to take pills with each meal if it's a phosphorus binder. And this is a patient population that already has a significant pill burden. And so I personally am reluctant to add additional medications and additional demands on their diets for things that don't have good outcome or perspective data supporting that use. I sometimes tell the house staff that trying to figure out what to do about the mineral metabolism is the holy grail of chronic kidney disease. We're searching for it, but we can't really find it yet. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that I find frustrating is it's just a situation where the proper studies have not been done. We have tools to change these numbers, right? We have great drugs to lower the PTH, lower the phosphorus, 
And we just need to do studies that don't look to see if we can affect those labs. I know we can affect those labs, but does that make a difference for the patients? And when we've attempted to do that, we've not been able to show improvements in patient outcomes. And that, to me, it just makes me reluctant to ask patients to make changes there. Great. Well, let's talk about the anemia next. Uh, sure. There's, there's iron involved in this. Uh, there's iron handling involved in this. And there's erythropoietin. What should we be doing about that, and when do we need to send them to you to help us manage that? Right. I think I think one of the reasons I'm so reluctant to treat mineral metabolism is our experience in anemia, right? Because this is another situation where we have great tools to treat the anemia. We were able to com- correct the anemia, and then when we actually looked to see how this was affecting patients, we were shocked to find that we were harming patients by normalizing their hemoglobin. This was what we thought was excellent care, and it turned out to be terrible care. And the, if, you're, if you're interested in looking at the study for this, it's called the TREAT trial. It's a uh, randomized controlled trial. It was placebo-controlled with darbipoietin in diabetic patients who have CKD, not on dialysis yet, and we were raising their hemoglobin above 13 and comparing it to placebo, so letting their hemoglobins drop as far as they would go. There was a rescue arm if their hemoglobins got profoundly low. But what we found was normalizing those hemoglobins didn't help patients. It actually harmed them. And so this is, this is one of the reasons I'm so adamant that just following the guidelines on mineral metabolism is not enough. They need to do the real heavy lifting and do the studies and show that these things really benefit patients for heart outcomes like survival, like cardiovascular events. Well, some of these patients need uh, erythropoietin in, in some form. Yeah, undoubtedly. You know, you'll see a few people starting to get anemia in CKD stage 3B, but it'll really start to build up and you'll see a lot more of them in CKD stage 4. And the guidelines now say we're not going to normalize hemoglobin. We're not going to bring their hemoglobins back up over 13. We're really looking for hemoglobins between 10 and 11, maybe 11 and a half. And for myself, I, uh, I always focus on is a patient suffering symptoms from their anemia? Are they having fatigue? Do they have decreased energy? And if they have that, and they have anemia, it's something that I do treat. But I wait, for the, I wait for those patients to be symptomatic. CKD is inherently an inflammatory state. And one of the things we know about inflammatory states is they get elevated hepcidin levels. And when that happens, it really blocks iron absorption. And so we see a lot of iron deficiency anemia in these CKD patients, even before they get the chronic blood loss that we associate with hemodialysis. And so I am regularly, when I see patients that are anemic, or if I have a CKD stage four, I'm pretty regularly checking those iron levels, and I'm pretty quick to use IV iron to correct those iron deficiencies. And I'd be, I'm amazed at how often I never have to reach for that EPO because just correcting their iron is enough to get their hemoglobin back up to that level of 10 to 11 that we're looking for. Great. So if I see a symptomatic patient in the nine, nine and a half range, a nephrologist is much more comfortable with the IV iron in their office and if, and deciding whether or not to use erythropoietin. That might be a reason that I would call you up. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a perfect reason uh, to employ a nephrologist to, to assist you with that. It's routine for us, and we're comfortable doing that. Okay, and the third big bucket, which sort of surprised people, uh, I've always loved acid-base, so I was always interested in the normal gap acidosis of chronic kidney disease. But these studies have come out that suggest that treating that actually really does help the patient. Yeah, this is actually one of the areas where this article 
is showing its age because it mentions that the the data they thought that the data was pretty weak for treating metabolic acidosis and i i wouldn't say it's robust but i think it's better than weak i think there's actually pretty good data there's perspective randomized controlled trial data treating that uh metabolic acidosis with multiple different methods right they've treated it with just giving them alkali they've treated it by changing their diet to have a more alkali focused diet more fruits and vegetables both of those have been able to slow the progression of chronic kidney disease. And so I'm a believer. And my understanding is if the bicarb is less than 22, most nephrologists will start bicarbonate replacement in, in one way or another, either diet, bicarbonate tablets, or if they won't tolerate bicarbonate tablets, uh, uh, a sodium citrate of some type. Yeah. So the, the goal is 22 to 26. Great. We'll get back to the acidosis with hyperkalemia in a second. When do we need to work up the progressive chronic kidney disease? We have someone come into our office. Their creatinine is elevated. They have, they've had diabetes for five or six years. They have proteinuria. And maybe you could talk about how we should be measuring the proteinuria. There, I know that a lot of places just check uh, urine protein to creatinine, but the experts seem to think that urine albumin to creatinine is a better marker Could you say a word about that? And when do we actually need to look for other causes other than diabetes or hypertension? When do we need biopsies and workup of progressive kidney disease? When I have a patient that comes into my office, one of the things I focus on is the pre-test probability that it's going to be either hypertensive nephrosclerosis or diabetic nephropathy is very high. Those are the common causes. That's going to be about two-thirds, three-quarters of all your chronic kidney disease patients. And you just don't want to miss that one patient in there that you can treat, uh, you can affect treatable costs. And so my guideline is I do the urinalysis. Do I see a lot of blood in the urine? You shouldn't have significant blood in the urine with diabetic nephropathy. You shouldn't have it with hypertensive nephropathy. That's a patient that needs further attention. Mm-hmm. Do they have uncontrollable high blood pressure, right? I'm, you know, I'm, I've got them on three, you know, I've got them on their uh, diuretic, their calcium channel blocker, and their RAS inhibition, blood pressure not controllable. That's another person that deserves an additional look. Uh, patients that have an abnormal ultrasound, you know, I was happy that this article recommended a kidney ultrasound for all patients in evaluations of chronic kidney disease. I completely agree with that. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't want to miss obstruction, right? The treatment of obstruction is not dialysis. Right. We, we can do better than that. And so, you know, you get an, you get an abnormal ultrasound, you get asymmetric kidneys, you get profoundly large kidneys. Those are situations where you would want uh, to do a, a deeper dive and a, a bigger evaluation. Another category would be patients that have uh, rapid progression, right? So patients, we would expect uh, patients uh, with uh, diabetes treated with a RAS inhibition to lose about five milliliters per minute GFR per year. You have patients that are losing, you know, every time you check them, their creatinine is going up, you know, 0.2, 0.3 every couple months. You want to get those patients referred for a deeper evaluation. Great. Well, this really plays into the conundrum for the primary care physician, and that is you have a diabetic, they have proteinuria, you put them on an ACE or an ARB, their potassium goes up, they develop type 4 RTA, you sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, could you talk about why that happens and what we should be doing about it? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as patients' GFR falls, uh, they get get increased risk for hyperkalemia. And anything that perturbs their balance there, like an ACE inhibitor, like an increased potassium intake for ch- by chance, uh, can push them into hyperkalemia. And so, you know, these are these are patients that are just going to be more fragile. So, what, what do you do when you have that patient? First thing, I want to make sure they're on a diuretic. That you're going to use the diuretic to assist with calyresis, help potassium excretion. Secondly, I want to make sure they're not taking an NSAID, make sure they're not doing other things to increase that serum potassium. Oh, make sure there's no obstruction, right? This is another uh, reversible cause of hyperkalemia. Patients with uh, benign prostatic hypertrophy are going to be more prone to hyperkalemia. And then if they have uh, untreated metabolic acidosis, providing them some alkali therapy can increase urinary potassium excretion. That would be another option. And then lastly, uh, you know, we live in a great time with new drugs, uh, pteromir, sodium zirconium cyclosilicate. Uh, this is a, a pteromir. So pteromir, their na- that name is Veltasa. And um, the sodium zirconium cyclosilicate is uh, Localma. And these are your new generation potassium binders that are extremely well, both of them are extremely well tolerated by patients. I'm finding them well covered by insurance, at least when I've tried to prescribe them. I've been able to get those medications for patients. And they work extremely well. And I have a number of patients that couldn't otherwise tolerate RAS inhibition. And I'm able to get them by there. Or they, I might even need to have started them on dialysis for profound hyperkalemia that I'm able to push off and delay by using these medications. So I've been, I've been real happy with how these medications work. One of the things I think is important for interns to understand is prevention. The last thing we want is for the patient to have to get to dialysis or need a transplant. Even at stage one and stage two in your proteinuria, you're trying to delay progression of disease. Can you go through the list and then finally, at the end of the list of ways to control progression, talk about the, the new study that I know that... Uh, you and your colleagues just uh, did a podcast, the NIFJC. Freely filtered. Freely filtered. That sounds like a nephrology podcast. I know <laughs> that you have intended. an episode coming out on this Credence article, so maybe you can get to that last. But uh, talk about the ACE, the ARB, other things that you're doing to try to delay progression of disease. So the, the number one thing we do is we're using ACEs and ARBs uh, as a one component of blood pressure control. Just about everybody with CKD is going to have elevated blood pressure. And using an ACE and an ARB, especially if they have proteinuria, have been shown to slow the progression of disease. I think there is debate whether controlling the blood pressure can prevent progression of disease. In most of the randomized controlled trials, they've not shown that. But it's kind of a ridiculous argument. I don't care if it prevents progression of disease because there's no doubt it prevents cardiovascular disease. And patients patients just don't want to die, right? They don't want to have a cardiovascular event. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a big deal whether controlling blood pressure prevents progression or not. We're all gonna control blood pressure. That's a super important thing for these patients because they are at high risk for cardiovascular disease. So after RAS inhibition, you're gonna control the blood pressure. And then after that, in terms of progression, if they're diabetic, you want to get their A1Cs down as low as safe. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so I think we're all a little gun shy after the Accord trial showed increased uh, cardiovascular disease mm-hmm. with with hemoglobin A1Cs below seven. But that was in a high risk cardiovascular population. Mm-hmm. And not every not everybody's high risk. So if you think it's safe to lower them a little bit below seven, mm-hmm. that's probably okay. But everybody should get good glycemic control. Right. Uh, we talked a little bit about treating metabolic acidosis. Mm-hmm. That's something that has some data about it. There's a little bit of the data on treating that treating asymptomatic increased uric acid may also slow progression of kidney disease. I wouldn't. I would say that data is not completely uh, that, that that loop has not been closed. But there's mm-hmm. some interesting data there. And then in patients with diabetes, this uh, the SGLT2 inhibitor. So this is going to be. Um, uh, empagliflozin or canagliflozin or dipagliflozin in the United States. So, but these these drugs have profound cardiovascular protection, and we just saw the data on canagliflozin for renal outcomes, and it is phenomenally impressive. This is the Credence trial that just got published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of weeks ago, and it showed about a 30% reduction in uh, the primary endpoint, which was a doubling of serum creatinine, dialysis, renal death. Uh, This is the exact same endpoint that we used to prove that angiotensin receptor blockers were good in diabetes. But the, so, and it has a, actually it's a stronger, I think it was about a 20% reduction with ARBs in renal disease. This is a 30% reduction in that outcome. And these patients were all on ACEs or ARBs. They were, this is above and beyond what you get with RAS inhibition. So, so this is synergistic. It's at least additive. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. A, it, but, but the idea that, you know, we had this, we, we, we had this big breakthrough called RAS inhibition and we've been delighted with that. And we've been seeing some uh, improvements, at least in Michigan, we've been seeing reductions in patients going on dialysis mm-hmm. due to diabetes and that's awesome. And now we've got another tool that works on top of that. Very impressive stuff. Right. Unfortunately, still expensive. Yep. Yep. Unfortunately, still expensive. The last thing is when we're taking care of a patient and they have progressive kidney disease, when do they need a nephrologist? And when do we start getting them ready for end-stage management? For me personally, the f- any time that a, a internist is uncomfortable taking care of the patient, I'm happy to see them, right? So if you're nervous please send them my way, right? I don't want you taking care of anybody you're not comfortable taking care of. But if you're comfortable taking care of these patients, I think certainly you can go all the way down to a GFR of 30 without without the assistance of a nephrologist. Once you get a, a GFR below 30, I think they definitely need to meet their nephrologist. And I think there's a lot of different styles among different nephrologists. Uh, but we start, uh, especially when the GFR gets down to around 20, or it's starting to get close to that, we start talking about dialysis and transplant. People can get listed for a kidney transplant before they go on dialysis, and there's a lot of advantages for doing that. Uh, you can get listed when your GFR falls down to 20 milliliters per minute. And so I like all of my patients to get listed as soon as that possibly happens so they can burn through as much of that list before they even go on dialysis. Mm-hmm. And some of my patients actually will get a transplant before they go on dialysis. We call it a primary transplant, and they never have to use that bridge of transplant. Just, it's amazing for patients. Right. And I know uh, since I do a lot of hospital medicine, I hate to see someone come in who's not been prepared and has to have a perm cath, 
rather than having a fistula if they're when they're getting started on dialysis because there's always something that goes wrong. It seems. No, I, I no, that's that's. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, we, we don't like people crashing on dialysis. We want to make this as prepared and as thoughtful and as boring and comfortable as possible. And so we, we love to start people without even having them go to the hospital. You know, as their GFR falls below 20, this is something that we think about. Our guidelines say that we should work on a vascular access or peritoneal dialysis access when they're about six months away from dialysis. It ends up being a little bit tricky trying to get that timing done. But you know you can't just have a patient come in with a GFR of 20 and say we need to send you for surgery to work on your arm to get you ready for dialysis. It's just it's too much for patients to accept, and it's right. important for them to have time to get to know the nephrologist, to understand the system, to understand their options that are available, and to you know educate themselves and their family about the process. And that to me it takes a while. So I like like I said I like to see them when their GFR goes below 30. But I'm happy to see them above that. And then the other thing that we talked about a little bit earlier, but I want to emphasize again, hey, patients with abnormal electrolytes, profoundly low potassiums, profoundly high potassiums early, I'm happy to see those people also early. Same thing with uh, if they have hematuria or abnormally high amounts of proteinuria that doesn't seem right for diabetes, you know, 20, 12, 14 grams of proteinuria, 15 seven or eight grams early in diabetes doesn't feel right to you. They don't have retinopathy. They don't have neuropathy, no other end organ damage, but all this proteinuria, maybe the diabetes is just a, uh, a distractor and they have a, prim- a primary glomerular nephritis that needs to be evaluated. Those are patients that we should also see long before their GFR is 30. Well, this has been a great conversation. I think this would be very helpful uh, to a lot of uh, internists, a lot of residents, and even medical students who seem to be listening to our uh, podcast a great deal, and we're happy about that. I'm going to try to summarize, and why don't you build on this. What I really like that you emphasized was what's the normal progression of kidney disease with diabetes and hypertension, and when and what are the red flags? And you really emphasize those red flags very nicely. And you also emphasized when the patient really needs a nephrologist to start preparing for the ultimate progression of their disease. And you pointed those things out very clearly. So I think those are, to me, are those are the two real big messages is when can you not just assume that it's their diabetes or their hypertension? Maybe you can, you can go over that one more time and the key reasons why they need to see you. Okay. Most of the patients that come in that have diabetes and hypertension, that's going to be cause of the kidney disease. So you want to look for the red flags. So one that we didn't talk about is people with uh, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and HIV. Those patients are at risk for uh, primary glomerulonephritis or secondary glomerulonephritis from their viral illness, and they should take they should get a careful look. Patients that have a rapid progression of their kidney disease. So usually patients will have diabetes for 10 or 20, about 10 years before they start getting a progressive kidney disease. If they get diabetes and a year later, their kidneys, their proteinuria is pretty heavy and their kidney function is really deteriorating, that should be a red flag. Patients that have progressive kidney disease but don't have retinopathy and don't have neuropathy, they don't have other end organ damage indicative of progressive diabetic disease, those should also be warning flags. Patients with hematuria, abnormal kidney ultrasounds deserve additional additional looks also. And then patients that have rapid progression, right? We're expecting with treatment, blood, good blood pressure control, good uh, RAS inhibition, 
progression should be less than five milliliters per minute per year. If it's faster than that, these patients should be referred. Great. Are there any others? Uh, that sounds absolutely perfect. I think this has been great, Joel. Can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, joining me to discuss what I think is a very, very important topic that hopefully we can help some patients through education. Yeah, Robert, I'll, I'll tell you, this There's new this new data, these new drugs, this SGLT2 inhibitors, I, I think this is super exciting. It really is a new day for patients with diabetes. This is, these drugs are going to, uh, they're going to save lives and they're going to prevent a lot of dialysis. It's going to be really exciting, but we got to get these patients on them. Great. Thanks a lot, Joel. Hey, thank you very much. This is awesome. I always appreciate the call. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. The first thing that is very important about this discussion is going over how to use the estimated GFR and the stages of chronic kidney disease. We focused a lot on diabetic and hypertensive nephropathies because they're the most common, but Dr. Toff did a great job of pointing out the red flags that would make you think that a further evaluation is necessary. Certainly anyone who has had hep B or hep C is at risk for polyarteritis nodosa and mixed cryoglobulinemia, respectively. Patients who have hematuria or especially red cell casts deserve further workup. Patients who have a rapid progression of their kidney disease, in general with diabetic and hypertensive nephropathy, the GFR decreases 5 cc's per milliliter per year or less. Diabetic nephropathy usually does not occur until 10 years or greater of diabetes. So if the patient develops significant kidney disease and proteinuria within the next two or three years after starting diabetes, we should consider possible other diagnoses. They also usually don't have massive proteinuria. Patients who have what we think is diabetic kidney disease usually have either neuropathy or retinopathy. The absence of both should make us think about alternative diagnoses. And finally, he really stresses the importance of always making sure that we're not dealing with obstructive uropathy, especially remembering that diabetics also can get neurogenic bladders and get obstructive uropathy. In this discussion, we also talked about when to refer the patient to a nephrologist, what are the indications, and how to help the patient prepare for end-stage management. We certainly hope you've enjoyed this podcast that covers a very important diagnostic and treatment problem in current internal medicine. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.